Welcome to the Crash the Pond podcast. It is a Tuesday, July 5th edition of the show. So happy belated 4th of July to everyone. But more importantly, most importantly, today joining us is Mitch Brown of Elite Prospects EP Ringside, their director of North American Scouting. That's no small title. Um, Has done numerous tracking projects and just all around probably one of the most interesting reads out there when it comes to prospects and player evaluations. So Mitch, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Felix and Jake. It's much appreciated. Well, let's just dive right into it here. So we're, you know, hours really away now from the draft. And where I think we want to start, I think what most Ducks fans really just want to know, I think this is like what everyone is thinking about. If you're a casual fan who doesn't pay attention to, to prospects until a couple of weeks before the draft is just who the Ducks are going to take and kind of who they should target. And I think that that's something that we've been asking different people, but I feel like maybe in this draft, particularly Mitch outside of how, after how many picks do you think it's almost like impossible to really guess or know who someone is going to take? Uh, probably number one, uh, <laughs> number one, uh, three, three contenders right now, but I think more realistically, probably anywhere after number four is where it really starts opening up. I think the top three is pretty set in stone at this point. And then afterwards, it's going to be, I think it's going to be very telling what teams value and, uh, how they evaluate those players. Right. Yeah. I, I want to jump in here on that because I think this is an interesting thing. This is something we talked a little bit with Chris Peters about, but I want to get your take on this also. I feel like, and maybe this is just recency bias with the fact of kind of diving into this draft, looking at everything, but it feels like this draft is more wide open than ones in the past couple of years that I could remember. Like, I feel like, especially with kind of us paying attention more in depth to the top 10 with how, where the Ducks have been the last couple of years, it feels like there's been this kind of set group of players in each top 10. It's pretty straightforward. The order may change, but it's pretty, uh, pretty much the same no matter where you look. Whereas I feel like uh, this year, it kind of really is all over the place depending on where you look. Like, for instance, I think I saw today one person having Brad Lambert as or as high as top 10. And there's other places you look and he's in the second round. And now, granted, I think that might just be a one-off case with him, but I feel like that just is kind of indicative of this draft just feeling like it's all over the place. Absolutely. It's crazy. Even on the team side, there's not much agreements on who the number one defenseman is. Like some people have Juracek, some people have Nemitz, some have others. And then up front, it's crazy. I think part of that just comes from some of these players missing a full season or half a season and having their lives disrupted because of COVID. But it's also been a pretty interesting group overall to evaluate for the past few years. A few years ago, the 04s looked like one of the strongest groups we had. We knew the 05s were better, but the 04s looked like they were going to be a dynamic, exciting group. And then there were a bunch of players who kind of hit a wall, and then there were a bunch of players who really took off in their draft minus one season. And then this draft year has been, I don't want to say a lot of stagnation, but it certainly has been less in terms of the upward trajectory you expect through a player's draft year. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this. You look at, say, Pano Femis, who was very mediocre, to put it nicely, in the first, let's say, five-fifths of the season. And then the last sixth of the season, he looked like he could be a top 15 pick in the draft. So it's really going to come down to how these teams are, or when these teams are watching the players and how much they weigh flashes over actualities or regularities 
and how much they're willing to bank on decision making, i.e. turnovers improving with time. That's an I think kind of on a follow up of that. I feel like that I have a kind of interesting question for you on that is how much do you value that? Because for those of you that don't know that don't follow Mitch at Elite Prospects, he does a fantastic job of tracking data. Uh, putting that stuff down. I remember kind of one of the big things, I think you had an article last year about Matt Evaneers when we were really deep in that top three for that draft and just how much of a transitional monster he was and just the data that you had uh, around that was very interesting to see really kind of backed all that up. And so I'm curious kind of where you're at with combining the data versus those short stints and kind of what you end up valuing more and kind of a guy that I think comes front of mind with this is Uri uh, Uri Slavkovsky this year. And just how much does that factor kind of with your process and your your take on, on this draft, especially with a guy like him? So I think the first place to start is do turnovers matter, yes or no? And so you can obviously track turnovers in a bunch of different ways, but the way I track them specifically is you turn the puck over on the um, in the defensive zone, that's a failed exit, even if it's not like a, a very like mm-hmm. explicit exit attempt. You turn the puck over in the neutral zone or just after the offensive zone blue line, it's a failed play. Now, do those actually matter? And for a lot of players, they don't, because you expect that players will try things and they will fail. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. a player trying things and failing is very important. Look at Simone Edmondson of last the last draft. He got a lot of flack for turning the puck over, and now he's one of the best prospects on the planet. Like, in this draft, he could be the number one player. So I think in some cases it matters, but specifically with if it's in a certain area or a specific situation. So something that tracking data can help us really like focus in on is like, where do they turn the puck over and under which situation do they turn the puck over in? So like Kevin Korchinski is far and away the most turnover prone player I've ever tracked in five years, uh, primarily under pressure, but where do they all come from? They all come off retrieval. So he skates back to the end boards, gets the puck and then throws it away. And oftentimes it's not as simple as him like, dumping it out immediately, but him reversing it to no one or him passing it up the boards when there's pressure or him trying to make a play straight up the middle to no one in particular or to or through three, four checkers, you know? So those are the ones that are a little bit more concerning. Those are the ones where it's repeated and you keep seeing it and you don't see a ton of progress throughout the season. And then as for Slavkovsky, I I, I don't track Europeans, European players myself, but I think Slavkovsky could be one of the more interesting ones because there's a lot of talk about hockey sense with him. Mm-hmm. It's all about does he understand the game at a deeper level? Is he just a big guy who does cool things and can deke people? And I think by my estimation, he is actually a smart player. He's just turnover prone because he's trying things. He's trying to broaden the mm-hmm. horizons of his game. So it will help like da- data and in, in junior hockey and in a prospect evaluation will help tell you like what is going on. Mm-hmm. But unless you're getting super granular with it, like tracking like locational data of every single touch and you yeah. have it and you're doing that for every single player on their team so you can understand like what they're being asked to do, uh, what is outside of the structure, then it's more to point you in the right direction than you have to rely on your eyes to figure out the rest. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's a really interesting point with tracking data because as revealing as it is, like you said, you can go even further to understand the, the players a lot better. I mean, I think that that's an interesting point that you made, though, regarding, you know, prospect evaluation with defensemen and the types of mistakes that they're making. And you use the term hockey sense. And this is a term that gets used a lot this time of year. And I think that a lot of fans, a lot of people that grew up watching the game or that 
are obsessed with hockey like we are have a general understanding of what that means, but it's by no means a well-defined term. So I'm curious for you, what does hockey sense look like? How do you pick that out of a crowd essentially? So I don't use it in my written work or my video work at all, uh, mainly because everyone has a different recipe for what gets what gets factored into and what doesn't. But in our draft guide, we mentioned that we're primarily looking for like say three things: habits, reads, and decision making. Decision making is the one that you know might matter the least. So habits is like being aware of the play, scanning regularly, uh, anticipating rotations, whether your teammate is moving up the boards and you have to go down for a handoff or you're anticipating defensive rotations. And then the reads are like how quickly you're anticipating uh, opportunity opening up. If you're reading the stick placement, the movements of defenders or four checkers, if you're planning what you're doing. So when you're looking at like sort of high-end NHL players, it's not as simple as getting the puck and, you know, reacting, it's more, they see an option and then they're going to stack the deck in their favor. They're going to bend the forechecker or the defender to their will by moving in one direction, faking something, doing another. And then the last part of it is decision-making, which is, you know, do they turn the puck over a lot? Are they executing at the right times? And I think that's probably the easiest thing to improve. Everyone says, you know, skating is the easiest thing to improve. I think decision-making even more so, especially in today's era of where, you have more junior coaches being like, hey, you know that cool thing that you did that resulted in a turnover? Why don't you keep trying that and see if you can make it happen? You know, in today's era of hockey, in junior level especially, you know, there are probably at least 20 teams in the CHL now that have very progressive modern coaching where these players can try things. And so it's important to understand the context before you start bashing a player for giving the puck away a ton, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's a great answer because to me, this is what I love about the Elite Prospects Draft Guide, which has really become like a foundational tool for me each year, just to at least understand the draft. But honestly, to understand the sport better is that there are actual terms being used to describe, okay, like you said, the idea of hockey sense. Instead of dialing in on that, just here are the components and here's how it mechanically actually works. And one thing I've been curious about because I know in your work as well, there's a lot of that where you use specific terms to describe a certain play or a certain skill or you know skill blending. And I'm just curious, where does this all come from? How did you arrive at using these terms? Is it something where spending time around skills coaches or studying you know different games? I mean, I'm just curious, what's where's the, where's this all coming from? So part of it is just frustration, you know. I didn't play hockey growing up. So when I started getting interested in hockey as a teenager and natural extension was to start writing, there weren't a ton of resources. And, you know, I identified the same issue. Everyone throws out these terms like hockey sense, but they're not explaining what they think that is. And then you start hearing anecdotes from the NHL side or like half of our arguments are about adjectives. You know, we're arguing about whether a player is a good or a great skater. We might agree on the on everything about it. Just we disagree on which adjective you use but there isn't a ton of awareness about you know, semantics in this case. So it was born out of that, preferring to describe rather than rather than default on key terms. And then for all the writing nerds out there, one of the one of the most interesting tricks that I like to use is if you're going to use a term, you just immediately you use a comma and then you just put what you're saying, you know, the definition <laughs> afterwards. So then you can keep using that term without having to rehash the same de definition throughout the article. But it was mostly just there wasn't a ton of stuff when I started writing. 
and I didn't have many options. So I just started trying to find ways, you know, sometimes you use make a make up a term and it doesn't <laughs> stick and it's awful. And you wonder why you would ever write that. And then other times you write an article and you're talking about deception and then suddenly deception becomes sort of at the forefront of public hockey analysis. And that's pretty satisfying. I will concede. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's one of the best things that, that that elite prospects and specifically your writing has done is that you can pinpoint why this player is good you know why the things that they do yield better results at the end of the day and hockey has really lacked that for so long you know to me i compare it to like basketball where you can pinpoint specific skills and you know dribbling shooting what type of dribbling you know what type of move what have you there's a term for every single thing and maybe for some people it's overwhelming a little bit to, to get thrown out with all these terms. But on the other hand, it is nice to understand why that specific player is good or bad or improving or or what have you. So kudos kudos to Elite Prospects for that. Um, Jake, are you are you okay over there with I'm the connection? Sorry. Yeah, there's something really weird going off my connection. So sorry everyone out there. Uh, I do not know what's happening with the stream, and so apologies there. It's something with my internet. So uh, blame Coxnet for the uh, the stream being a little laggy, but the YouTube video and the audio stream will be perfectly fine. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, so then. Sorry. We'll just... Sorry. That that's been my uh, yeah. My all over the place you're, trying to figure. You're you're looking a little pixelated. So. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> is know, it that bad for you guys? Yeah. It's a, it's Damn. a good lo- it's a good look on you though. Don't worry. Wow. It it's great that uh the the stream comes from my computer right now and it's uh it's doing this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It works out perfectly. <sighs> um. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable though moving this along, or do you want to anything you uh, want to try to fix this? I don't think there's anything I try to fix it right now unless I can have like a five ten minute break. Do you want that? Is that necessary? No, we can keep moving. The this okay. we'll just put, we'll post the the video on okay. YouTube. Okay, no problem. All right, so then let's just move this train along. So I was kind of my goal was to keep the more broader conversation on the back end, but it's really interesting to me, so that's why I brought it up. But I think we should kind of spin this forward a little bit now to the Ducks and who they're going to pick. And I think to me, one of the questions that we talked about a little bit before recording was there is this notion out there that the Ducks, Mitch, have this great system. You know, they have so many different boxes checked, different players, you know, Drysdale, Zegras, all this. And so now they need to maybe start drafting for need. I guess just your philosophy on that as a whole, drafting for need versus best player available, and also when taking a, a glance at the duck system, how you see, if you do see any areas for need or just kind of keep that philosophy going. So the first thing is, while I am sympathetic to the idea that you should draft for need, you always draft the best player available. And of course, mm-hmm. the best player available changes from organization to organization, person to person, because they're looking for different things. But say you're the, I don't know, the Ottawa Senators and you want to pick heavy hitting, hard skill guys, and then you pick Tyler Boucher over Cole Sillinger. You know, that's, you know, is Cole Sillinger the best player available? In hindsight, yes. At the time, it wasn't especially clear, but he was clearly better within that archetype than Tyler Boucher. That, that was that was never up for discussion. I'm saying this as a guy who really liked Tyler Boucher in his draft year. I think I ranked him like 45th or 50th or something, which was, which was very high. Right. So I think for the Ducks in particular, especially given that you have another top 10 pick, you're picking for the best player, the best all-around skill guy. And I think just based on the Ducks, 
draft history, we kind of have an understanding of what they value. Look no further than picking Mason McTavish third overall. They didn't pick him because he's the most dynamic guy. They picked him because he has an interesting combination of skills. He's not just big, gets to the net. He's big, knows how to get open, and has a crazy shot. He's not just really good along the boards. He doesn't endlessly cycle the puck. He moves it off the boards as quickly as possible. He's not just a skilled playmaker. He manipulates defenders. He draws pressure in, and then he passes through them. And so the natural extension to that is probably, say, Frank Nazar, who has a lot of similarities to McTavish, just in a smaller, more explosive package. Mm-hmm. Nazar is a pretty interesting candidate for this, uh, for the fit with the Ducks, largely because you can easily see how he could slide alongside, say, Trevor Zegers. You could easily see how he could be third-line center. He can play either wing because he's just as good off the backhand as he is the forehand. He's just as creative when he's cutting back as he is driving the net. And so he's sort of the ultimate versatile versatile player for the organization, I think, in that regard. And then, of course, Connor Geeky gets brought up. I think, personally, Connor Geeky is a high-skill guy. The Ducks have shown that they they know how to improve players. They have shown before that they know how to improve skating. Connor Geeky could very well be a top five player from this draft class. He certainly is top five player by intelligence, by the upper level of what he's able to do with the puck. He's a six foot four guy who can manipulate, draw defenders towards him, just like with the Metavish thing, and then pass through them. He's got real gravity to his game. He's bringing everyone towards him. And he also plays, you know, a, a uh, I guess Cody Glass would be a comparison, but where Cody Glass always plays slow. He gets the puck, he slows down. Connor Geeky gets the puck, slows down, speeds up. He has that extra gear that you can see him being able to play this game in the NHL, provided he's able to bend his knees more, sink lower into his posture. And so while I think Geeky might not be the most exciting pick in that spot, he could certainly work out. And then on the defensive side of things, this is where it gets really fun, right? Because <laughs> you have... Zell yeah. Weger, Ian Moore, Jamie Drysdale, Jackson Lacombe. It's very clear. And, oh, and Henry Thrun, of course, who's, who's quite an exciting player, even if the tools aren't all that electrifying. <laughs> These are activating defensemen. And they're not just activating. They're proactively activating. They understand how to put themselves in position to maximize their time and space once they receive the puck. They understand how to get open. They understand how to maximize their teammates' options when the puck arrives on their stick. So there are three guys who kind of come to mind who do that in this year's draft. There's Denton Matejchuk, who is probably, if Owen Power didn't exist, he would be the best activator or the most intelligent activator we've seen in the draft in the last three, four years. Hmm. You have Owen Pickering, who does all the Matejchuk stuff, just at very low volume because he was on a weak team. And you have Mijukov, who is probably the best combination of tools and intelligence of those two players. Um, Korczynski is also another, another interesting one here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Ducks pick him by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the fact that his game isn't quite as instinctual as, say, Zellweger or Drysdale, his game is more focused on like long-range plays as opposed to short-range plays. It's more focused on like doing work off the point rather than activating like north-south. It's more like lateral movement. I think uh, he doesn't quite align with what they've valued historically. Hmm. That's interesting because, yeah, I feel like anytime I look at a different mock draft, a lot of people are mocking uh, are mocking him to the Ducks. And so I think it's going to be fascinating to see kind of where they end up going because there are those trio of, of defensemen that all, at least just from what I'm seeing, I haven't necessarily watched uh, that much film on them just from what I've been able to read from you from just all over the place. 
but Matejchuk, Menchukov, uh, and Korchinski, and just they're kind of the, this range of three defensemen. So which one essentially is going to go off the board first? And if a team may value the size of Korchinski as compared to the skill and the, the speed and transition uh, of the other two. Yeah, and another interesting thing, too, is like we can't forget Pickering in this conversation. I know the point totals aren't there, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when you're looking at it in terms of the reads, the anticipation, the processing, the activation instincts, and the tools. Like, it's not just if he were six feet tall, he'd be just as good. It would be right. just as good of a player. The fact that he's six foot five is, you know, this is where we start talking about Simone Edmondson, you know, coming back into the conversation here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's just really tough to evaluate a guy on a team that has a structure that doesn't align with the skill level of the players. And but you also look at, you know, they, you know, they have Clark Caswell, Josh Fluker, they have some names for 2024 draft. These are, they're going to be a fun team next year. And you think that Pickering could really take off, especially as he gets stronger. He's 180 pounds at six foot four and a bit. Yeah, part of his improvement is just going to come by adding weight. And as he adds weight, he's going to be able to get deeper into his stance. His cutbacks are going to be more explosive. He's going to find more separation. And I guess you can make the same argument for Korchinski too. You know, as he adds weight, those cutbacks that he's so reliant on might actually become a legitimate projectable weapon. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that is that is an interesting point in terms of, I guess, gauging a player's ceiling is what are their weaknesses, I suppose, and what and how improvable are those weaknesses? And I know that you you touched earlier on skating. Um, I guess for you, what's the least, the hardest thing to improve as a as a, a young prospect, and maybe the the thing that you're most comfortable assuming will improve for any one player. Maybe there's not a catch-all answer for this. It's case by case, but I'm curious, what's the spectrum here? So I would say the hardest thing to improve is like taking the step from being a guy who can create lanes, create opportunities, manipulate, um, like taking that next step from just being sort of a supporting player to that level. You almost never see that. There are cases, but they're generally contextually driven. So, i.e. the player didn't have an opportunity to do those things, and then as he goes to the next level, he finds it. And then the uh, the one that I would say probably matters the least is like uh, speed, quickness for the level. Um, mm-hmm. You know, part of it is just because it's so hard to be able to identify that on video, and even in person, like speed, yes, it's true, like you are either faster or slower than this person, but it's often based on like where's the starting point uh are the do they overhandle the puck like are they pushing into space or are they trying to handle the puck while they're skating um do they have a break on the defenseman are they thin and their jersey flaps in the wind so it looks like they go faster is the camera <laughs> angle too low like there are so many different things that go into that uh that it's it's one of these things like you don't really evaluate you kind of more evaluate mechanics and even then when it comes to skating it's all situational right like you would evaluate say for me personally like i'm looking at ankle flexion like do they do they push their knees past their toes and i'm looking at edges like can they cut back turn do they have a lot of skating skills now if they're super reliant on one thing and they're not very good at that one thing then of course you're going to be more concerned about it like if you like kevin korchinski are very reliant on the cutback but your cutback never provides any separation that's obviously Mm -hmm. a concerning thing but you also look at the other side and you see a player who grew recently. He still has a ton of physical development. It should, in theory, improve with time. You know, I think stride mechanics and all these little things matter. But 
lots of players play with below average stride or awkward mechanics and stuff like that because a large part of it is just being able to anticipate and think and process and yeah i would say the skating particularly like the straight line stuff is probably like the least consequential thing in evaluation like you Hmm. just always would expect that to kind of come along i'm curious kind of this wasn't necessarily what you were going into right there but i know we talk a lot about age at the draft and kind of where someone's uh birthday is in comparison to where the draft is and one thing that I, i know we always a lot of the conversation ends up being around just age and development and maturity and things like that how much do you think people look into how much more people have to grow in terms of if a guy is a smaller guy and how much they have to grow after that. Cause I, I feel like that's, that's not something I ever he- really hear discussed. Well, you have half the NHL being like, Oh, well, his father's big. He'll grow. So we got to take, it. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but there is, it, it's, it comes up in conversation a lot. I mean, it's all conjecture, right? It's all, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Right. We think based on this, we think based on that. And I think, for the most part, it's based on extremities. Like Owen Pickering is the best example in this draft. Like he's really light for someone his height, and you can see it in his movements. Like he's very fluid, but there's still a lot of chatter through his turns and stuff like that because he can't mm-hmm. he can't hold the depth in his posture as long as other players can. And you, again, weight will help fix that. You know, you need to get stronger. He went yep. just went through a massive growth spurt. It'll improve. And then as for the birthday thing, I mean, have, being a late birthday it always is an advantage. Because mm-hmm. you have that extra year development, you've played for yep. an extra year, you have more time off the ice to work on it and improve things. Um, but I would say, like, if you're comparing like a January to early September birthday, there isn't a ton of evidence that suggests that there's a huge difference. But mm-hmm. I think on a case by case basis, because and again, we are averaging things, there are certainly players who fall later on in the birth, later on in their birth year, who are certainly a little bit more behind the curve developmentally. Like, I think it's very common for you see these August or July, August, September players to be a little bit late in terms of decision making, a little bit late in terms of being able to handle physicality, puck battles, uh, or skating might be a little bit worse. But at the end of the day, they improve. I think actually the most interesting kind of thing that relates to this is when you look at it from like you look at it by birth month or you, you don't even have to do it like a, you don't even have to do a binning thing, but you can just look at like how many mm-hmm. players based on each date have success. Yeah, It's very common for player for NHL teams to be better at identifying older players for they generally like the late birthdays are generally have a higher chance of reaching the NHL because if you're only including drafted players, right? Because the NHL teams do a better job and it requires less imagination to project those players. So that's kind of where the age thing becomes an interesting element because you can definitely find ways to pick up players who are less developed physically and hope that they can catch up later on. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have, Mm -hmm. you know, you always hear about the the birthdays and and that's a, that's a plus or a minus, but I'm going to have to start paying more attention to that now. (laughs) Um, I don't know why, but this has popped into my head with, with everything you've been saying. So, I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast with with Daryl Belfry, and he was talking about when he's, this is the skills coach, Daryl Belfry, for those who don't know, he was talking about evaluating, when he's evaluating prospects in particular, he'll go through all their goals, and he looks at, and he has this, he has this delineation of, was it a junior goal, or was it a, a pro slash NHL goal? 
And basically the reasoning there behind calling it a junior goal is, oh, that that play was only successful because he's playing against junior players or, or what have you, some version of that. And I'm curious for you, do you have any kind of, of delineation in that way, any kind of methodology that's at all similar to that, or does that even matter? Oh, it trans- translatability is huge. We were just mm-hmm. talking about it with the skating aspect, right? If you're super mm-hmm. reliant on one thing that you're not going to be able to carry with you to the NHL, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Hmm. Now, for that Daryl Belfry uh, podcast in particular, he mentions uh, he mentions the net drive, the outside lane net drive. So skating straight up the boards and then trying to race the defender to the net. You see one of those every single night in the CHL. You see one of those maybe once a month. I think Seth Jarvis did it this year. Uh, a few other guys did it this year, but it's not a particularly common play in the NHL because you have to be you can't Connor McDavid can't even do that every single if he gets the puck, he's not gonna be able to drive that every single time. NHL defenders are just too good at being gapped up. And then the other one that he mentions that I thought was particular it's particularly pertinent, especially in today's CHL, is like the uh, stationary planted net front goal. Because you see a lot of these guys, they just stand in front of the net. No one touches them. They just hammer the puck in. And you don't see a ton of goals like that in the NHL today. Today, scoring in front of the net is more of like a movement kind of thing. You get in front, you push off the defender, you spin away, you time your movement in to deflect the point shot, gather the rebound. It's intelligent battling and movement. Uh, So I think like there are a lot of players who you can almost instantaneously cross off. Like the easiest part of scouting is being like, this guy will never play because wow. it's, they don't have the translatable. They don't have the translatable plays, and then they don't have the tools to be able to find new ways to do those plays. So I'm not gonna. I mean, if you want me to mention names, I can. But like, sure, let's hear them. Yeah, there are a few guys in this year's draft who you look at and you're like, what he does, there is zero chance regularly <laughs> that, it will, that you'll ever be able to score in the NHL like this. And of course, there are some players that because they have the tools, you anticipate them being able to weed out those plays, right? And uh-huh. they'll find new ways to have success. They'll find new ways to score, new ways to do these things. Um, but then there are the candidates like, uh, say, Lane Hudson. I like Lane Hudson. Mm. I think there's a real chance that he could be a top 30 player from this draft class. But if your entire game from the point is going to be about taking advantage of a skating advantage you will not carry with you, you're going to be in significant trouble, especially when that play is enter a wide glide, turn your head one way, turn it the other way. Since it's the USHL, a guy like goes skates off in the corner or something. <laughs> and then you have a clear lane. Of course, Lane Hudson, though, what makes him interesting is that while he uses that play a lot, he also will cut back, find another play, work laterally, shift his weight, open up defenders, create passing opportunities. And so there should be at least somewhat of a bit of a natural progression with that. You expect that once the space goes away, he'll realize, oh, that's not going to work. I'm just going to do these all these other cool things that I can do, and hopefully, and hopefully that'll happen uh, for me at the next level. I mean, you look at, say, Yon Lashing, Moncton. You know, he's, he's fast, one of the fastest players in the draft. No functional speed, though, because there's mm-hmm. no directional changes. He's always trying to take guys wide. He, he'll be a fun junior guy. He could hit 100 points in a couple of years. Will he ever play? I mean, I would, I would lean probably not. Uh, hmm. Brandon Lazowski. I like Brandon Lazowski a lot. I like his game. He's a small guy who loves to cut inside and shoot. So you have to look at, okay, 
how do you be a small guy and playing? How do you be a small shooter and play in the NHL? First mm-hmm. thing is you got to be really good at getting open. Is Lazowski really good at getting open? Somewhat. Second thing is you got to be explosive when you cut inside. So what he does is he, when he's cutting inside, say he's on his weak side. So his stick is in the middle of the ice and he's cutting across the defender. He turns on his outside leg. You ideally in that situation want to initiate the turn on your inside leg by lifting mm-hmm. it up and placing it on the outside edge because that's a sharp cut. It's called the jab in most skills coaching circles. Right. You use that, you cut inside, you blend it into your shot. You very quickly, very suddenly, very explosively have the weight shift, the inside cut, and the shot all in one. He doesn't right. do that. And so how is he going to do that in the NHL? And then the next thing is how many small guys in the NHL don't pass? And if they're not going to be elite scorers, right? Right. And he doesn't really play a give and go game in the NHL. You can you have to be you have to be at least six foot five to be able to get away with being a bad <laughs> shooter. Or with at least shooter, yeah who doesn't <laughs> doesn't have a give and go game then right. you get 100 games minimum and you're going to make you're going to make eighty thousand dollars for the rest of your life playing hockey right <laughs> but for a guy like lazowski he's got to pass the puck proactively it can't just be oh i ran out of space now i'm going to throw it to my teammate and hopefully he can knock it down you have to be able to make the early pass then sprint get open get the puck back shoot um and then you know you look at some other guys like ben mcdonald skating issues Game is very reliant on the outside. You don't expect a ton of him. You don't expect that he's going to have a ton of solutions there at the next level. So it's a really it's a really tough one, especially because a lot of these players are very easy to appreciate. Like it's very easy to appreciate mm-hmm. Brandon Lazowski. It's very easy to appreciate Matthew Ward. You know, everyone wants to root for an underdog, but a lot of the time, um, if you're too reliant on doing the same thing and your game doesn't diversify. It doesn't matter how good the single thing that you do is. Right. Well, okay. So there's just a player that keeps coming to my mind for the Ducks that I have to ask you about. I don't know how much time you actually spent watching him, but Sam Steele is one of those guys to me where, you know, was massively productive in junior, at least had productive seasons and was a first round pick, very late first round pick. But there was this expectation that that, you know, I think a lot of fans see the point totals and there was this expectation that it was going to carry over. And and for years, you know, every time you would hear people talk about the duck system, it was always, you know, Sam Steele, Max Conta. It's like he was one of the names. And that seemed to me to be at least purely based on just points. And I'm just curious if you have any Sam Steele thoughts slash takes of why why his production hasn't or his game never got to that level in the nhl i don't but david okay. <laughs> colleague watched him recently oh okay he mentioned that one of the things he didn't they didn't have in junior i don't know if we didn't follow i didn't follow up my conversation beyond the initial stages but he didn't have like a physical game in junior mm-hmm. and the physical game is one of these things that i think is kind of misevaluated I know, I know I, I'm sitting here sounding like, you know, thinking I'm a smart guy, but like <laughs> we, we think of it as being as, you know, hitting, winning puck battles and stuff like that. Whereas the physical game is often about being able to put defenders on your back and being able to make play with back pressure, being able to cut inside, being able to make plays in motion under pressure, basically taking pucks off the boards to the inside lane. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't Sam Steele's game in junior. And for a playmaker with like unexceptional tools, not having that ability is always going to be a massive hurdle to clear. 
because right. in the NHL, your playmaking game is largely based around creating advantageous situations for your teammates. Where's the least advantageous situation? The boards. Where's the best one? The middle. Naturally, you want to be able to get pucks off the boards into the middle. And if mm -hmm. you can't do that, your playmaking value might not be especially high. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting because I remember a couple of years ago, I was writing an article on Max Contois and just an evaluation of his game. And I think I may have reached out to you for this. I don't fully remember, but I remember I had, I had reached out to Jack Hahn about it and he had pointed out that the big flaws with Contois game were things you're talking about, which is difficulty getting the puck off the boards. And it's funny because that's not something that I would ever think about in terms of something to look for, but very clearly, yes, if you can't get it off the boards and you can't get it back into the actual play, into the, the areas that matter, it's going to be almost, like you said, it's almost impossible for you to be a meaningful player at the NHL level, it seems. Absolutely. And another interesting thing about Comtois is that you don't even need him to make the next play. You just need him to create chaos in the middle of the ice, right? Because mm -hmm. in the NHL, everyone is skilled. You can throw a puck at this guy's head and he'll knock it down and then one time it out of the air, right? Mm -hmm. You just need to be able to get that puck, drive it into the middle, be a bull. Um, uh, you know who's good at that? I mentioned Merle Frank Nazar. I actually track how many times players successfully bring a puck off the boards into the middle. Yeah, I saw that. One <laughs> in this year's draft class of USHL and, C and CHLers. So, like, yeah, it's it's a it's a big deal, and it's mm -hmm. not size dependent. I think it's more dependent on like skill and also awareness. Mm -hmm. And part of it too is like willingness to to get in those areas and willingness to. Uh, I like to call it inverting pressure. So mm -hmm. you have to be patient. You have to wait there. You have to get to the puck, wait for the guy to get to you, and then spin away or take your free hand and keep them there. But it's one of these things that, like, it is so important for pretty much every player archetype. And there isn't a ton of discussion about it. And I think probably next season we'll probably start seeing a lot more talk about it just because there are a couple players at the top of next year's draft who are so obviously brilliant at that. Like, Connor Bedard, everyone can appreciate a wrister, everyone can appreciate the dangles, but you know, part of the key central theme of what makes Bedard so good, this man knows how to get the puck to the middle better than anyone in the CHL. Mm -hmm. In every situation, in every circumstance. And I think I think he, just like how he's gonna try to kind of change the calculus on how we evaluate shooting, he'll do the same for how we in the public sphere evaluate sort of board play and physical skills. Right. Yeah, it, it is so interesting that this notion of getting into the middle, because, you know, again, bring it back to the NBA, where things are so clearly defined, at least in my head, and the whole three point revolution that occurred. I feel like in hockey, it's definitely not to the same degree at all. But it's particularly with expected goal stats and the tracking that you do. I think there's a better understanding now that it is so important, so vitally important to get it into the middle to create those quality looks because those, you know, the defensemen that spam point shots into, into shin pads just don't really drive winning to me at least. And that's why, you know, you mentioned activating off of the blue line and those defensemen that can really get into the teeth of the, you know, the different layers of defenders that just seems to be such a, almost a necessary, I, mean, I don't want to say necessary, but, close to necessary skill to be a really impactful offensive defenseman. Um, shifting gears just a tiny bit, I did want to... So with Frank Nazar, I don't know, maybe this isn't an apt comparison, but a lot of the things I hear about him and just watching him a bit, 
one name that comes to mind that I think Ducks fans may recall is Andre Kasha, where it's just that that crazy determination to get the puck, to get into dangerous areas. And, you know, Andre Kasha is not nearly a top five level talent in a draft. But I guess what are some comparables? I know that this is not a game that, you know, people love to play, you know, given NHL comparison. But for Frank Nazar in particular, what's maybe an NHL comparable for you? The cash one's kind of fun because it's like cash with like elite athletic ability, right? Mm-hmm. Like cash with explosiveness, cash with crazy hand-eye coordination. Um, the guy who we used in the draft guide is sort of a shades of, not a comparable, but a guy who stylistically he's similar to is Braden Point. It's mm-hmm. the same sort of thing where if you're just you have playing, you're just watching the game in the background, it might be, it might, he might not pop out all that much because he's not doing the super uh exciting electrifying crazy curl and drag shot kind of stuff but he's consistently attacking the middle he's consistently getting open when he doesn't have the puck and he's playing fast slow everything in between bringing defenders towards him making plays through him he's he's the best play creator he's a guy who doesn't just make a positive play he's always looking to make the best play and Braden point is one of the best examples of that in the nhl without having like absurd physical tools like Connor McDavid. Right. Right. Well, I think with, with Nazar, what's interesting is that there does appear to be a pretty big divide on, you yeah. know, his, his ranking because the way you're talking about him, I'm getting excited and, you know, reading, you know, the analysis and, and the guide seems to be an, an excellent prospect. So I have, I have my suspicions of why this divide exists, but I guess what's your explanation for that? Well, I think the first part of it is just you look at the scoring, and he's fourth on the team in points per game. And right or wrong, a lot of people build their uh, profile of a player, even if they're watching the tape, around how they're scoring. And of course, with a superstar team like this, there will always be misalignments in terms of production and actual impact. I also think that Nazar in particular, again, is one of these guys who does things he has insane flashes. He has very explosive, dynamic, uh, electrifying, all these things that you would expect to see from like a super high-end player. But they aren't the core of his game. They aren't the thing that he's primarily doing the most. For him, it's more attack middle, get open, build speed under the puck, uh, uh, shoot real hard, pass real hard, <laughs> and then like small area kind of manipulation where you're waiting for pressure to arrive you're cutting back the other way you're using deception to open up lanes but you're not necessarily breaking down the entire team or trying to throw out a bunch of stuff at once so right i think in his case it's a little bit harder to appreciate his game than say a logan cooley like again if you're just watching it for you know you're watching because you're watching the game you're not watching for any more deeper understanding it can be a lot easier to appreciate cooley because he's out there Deking people, failing a lot of them, but he's out there thinking, spinning around, doing crazy things, and Nazar is a little bit more direct in his approach. And then I also think part of it just comes down to, like, how do we evaluate decision-making and skating? And if you think that a guy like Nazar, who is very clearly explosive but might not have the same uh, perfect stride as some of his other teammates or the same sort of obvious open ice quickness as some of his teammates, you might not like him as much. And if you're a little bit more afraid of turnovers, 
you might see Nazar trying the best play over and over again, seeing him throw the puck away and thinking, oh, man, why would he do that when there's another opportunity available? Right. But it's one of these things where, like, I personally, I respect the hell of everyone who's doing all the work in the public sphere. It's amazing. Um, I also haven't had, to put it mildly, a ton of conversations about Nazar uh, because right. I have my own content to produce and I don't want <laughs> to be significantly swayed. You know, I mean, I'm watching these guys minimum eight times filing eight to 15 game reports per season on over 150 players in North America. Right. So there's a point to which you want to converse and have discussions with people. And there's also, but there's also, you know, you have a process and you want to stick to it because you're going to go back at this in a couple of years or even next season and evaluate what you've done. And you want to make sure that that was your take, that that was your opinion, because it makes it a lot easier to be able to make the corrections in your uh, process in that situation. Right. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, to me, that's probably the best way to do it because there is so much, there is so much groupthink, you know, for, for better or worse, it's almost inevitable. If you're an evaluator, you're going to all these rinks, you're, you're hanging out with people, you're, you're online, you're, you're on Twitter at all. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna start to form your opinion is gonna at some point be affected by someone else's. And yeah, I, th I think that I would rather just know only what that specific evaluator thinks about this player without any other influences. Of course, that's almost impossible to achieve, but I think, I, th I think that your process it, hel it, it helps to eliminate some of that, it would seem. And I am curious, you know, with the with tracking the data, what does that look like? You know, because we see that we see the charts, we get to benefit from them. We get to we get to use that information to form our own opinions. But I have to imagine that this is a very time consuming endeavor. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> extremely. Uh, I mean, I track every player in a game, um, both teams now. And I think mm. I've done like, I think I did like 400 or something games this year. And I probably do another 100 over the summer. So I have a spreadsheet. Uh, I, have, I have two I have two screens. I have one screen with the game and then a screen that has the lineup cards and then uh, a spreadsheet that just has the everything that I track. I think it has like columns A to Z basically are all different things that I track. And then as the event happens, I fill it out. Um, and of course, there's a lot of rewinding, a lot of pausing. Right. I've put all that into a master sheet at the end that calculates everything. And then I put that into a team sheet that has all the players on that team. And then I, again, the next step is I have to take all that data from each individual team and put it into one ginormous spreadsheet that has all the calculations. If I, <laughs> if I may, I'm going to pull it up now. And I have, for this season, I have a total of. 1,692 players in the data set. And the data goes from column A to column FM um, because of all the different calculations. So math is not my strong suit, even though I play with data every single day. So someone else can do the math on how many cells that is. And of course, that's the added totals of everything that happens. And then the other side of this is there's also the expected goal stuff. So right. my expected goal stuff isn't a, it's not like a model in the sense, you know, I've done a bunch of regression stuff on it. It's more, I have locations, I have where, like where they shot it from. I have the type of shot, the type of pass that was preceding it, whether it was an odd number rush, whether it was a rebound, 
and a bunch of stuff like that. And then in total, there's 131 different combinations of all of those things. And each one of those has a uh, shooting percentage, you know, how likely or historically how much has that combination of shots resulted in a goal. Mm-hmm. And then I just link that back to everything. So it's a massive mess, I will concede, and it is a massive <laughs> undertaking. But the tracking it is a, is a super interesting process. Like for anyone who is kind of curious about this stuff, you start out being very excited to do it, and then very quickly you realize, oh, this game is taking me eight hours. Like I've been on this game for eight hours, and I hate it, and I <laughs> want to move on. And then you just keep grinding it out. And then over time, eventually you realize you can – you know, I, they're, they're, your brain has to be active all the time. Like you're training yourself to know what to look for. And every time you introduce something new that you're tracking, you're, you have to retrain your brain. You have to re- and retrain your muscle memory too because, you know, your hands are always in the same place on the keyboard. You know, putting numbers, putting the same combination of letters, hitting tab at the same time and everything. So when I add something, I generally have to track like 50 to 60 games, not only to like rebuild how I input it and what I look for, but also to like get definitions. Cause like sometimes you're like, Oh, you know, I'm just going to track how many times the player turns the puck off on a retrieval. You're like, that should be pretty easy. Right. And then in a game, there's like maybe 50 retrieval touches, but 10 of them, are they really retrieval touches? Mm. And they fall in a gray area. And then you have to evaluate, okay, do I count this? Do I not? And if you don't have any strict definitions, then it'll change over time. And then tracking that thing was worthless because it's going to be different over time. So, the amount of questions and the amount of self-doubt and just like the amount of just time that you spend on this is is absurd. And to think that there are people who do more tracking than me. There are people who track more things than me. They, you know, they turn on the light more when they're tracking these games. You know, I think now nowadays I can generally get one done like an hour and a half to two hours. But there are people who plot every single event on on like a piece of paper or on some or a program on the computer. And man, like, if that if what it sounds like I'm doing is a lot, those people are spending six to eight hours on a game, and they're pulling down like 200 games a season minimum. Wow. wow. Yeah. So did I miss a good podcast, guys? <laughs> yeah. W- <laughs> welcome back. Welcome Thanks. back. I'm so sorry, Mitch, that this has happened while you're on. So uh, yeah. I let's just say I'm going to be giving my internet provider a fun little phone call tomorrow. I'll yeah. never forgive you. I'll never. Oh. <laughs> yeah. T- <laughs> well. Yeah. Thanks for, fill, thanks for filling in and keeping Felix occupied. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, I, I so my follow-up question to, to all that is, can you watch a hockey game and just, you know, like, like with a beer and just enjoy it now? Or is it, you're still, your brain still immediately starts tracking things just inadvertently. So I was, I was tracking a game in the playoffs while I was watching a playoff game. And I just like instinctively started tracking the playoff game when I was looking at Brad. I was like, no, 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 you're not allowed to do this. So no, I can't watch hockey games for enjoyment anymore. I watch basketball for enjoyment. That's, that's oh, I'm there doing. you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's appreciated. Um, and then I'm just sitting there and I'm like tracking how many rip throughs a player is doing. I'm like, you gotta stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they don't they don't call those anymore. Um, okay. Well, so my other my other stats question is: so the you have expected assists, which is something that I. I pray we get for NHL data at some point because that is such a revealing stat to me about, you know, cause we have, you know, with the NHL tracking data, we get high danger passes or passes to the slot, but expected assists to me is very intriguing because there's less definition to it. It's just 
it's just a it's an evaluation or not evaluation but it's it's in a model anyway what how does how do you get to that point of having expected assists what goes into that so the same thing with expected goals but the person who passed the puck to them gets credit for it and of course you can adjust mm. it based on how mm. much the player did so like say they passed the puck to a guy and then he deep through three players and then got the scoring chance do they deserve like the same value as if someone who set that up set that same shot up uh, but there was no deking and beating everyone involved kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the main question you're trying to get to. But yeah, it's basically just expected goals, but you're giving passer credit credit as well. Um, okay. And of course, different. the interesting part of it, though, is like if you, in the CHL, if you get a point-blank chance in front of the net, it has an 18% chance of going in. So it has an expected goal of 0.18. Now, if someone passes that to you, point blank chance in front of the net, it goes up to like 0.22, 22% chance. So it's a 4% increase. But say they pass it cross slot and you're at the far post, it goes up to 50. So if you get a shot on goal from there, half of the time it's going in the net. Wow. Um, and then if that's a one-timer, that goes up even more. If it's a backhand shot, it goes down. So there are so many different variables that you can play with to kind of see like, do I want to include shooter ability in a passing specific metric like if a player gets the puck in junior hockey because a lot of guys can't shoot it off the pass in junior hockey they get do do i punish the passer for not being able to for his teammate not being able to shoot it or do i punish the shooter so right now our right now the way that i manage it is that i just give it credit based on what happened not what i anticipated happening but Mm. there's a real or not what I think should happen, but there's a real debate about that. Like there's, yeah, there's real, like, should you track like intent or should you track results? And a lot of times for an evaluation perspective, tracking intent can be more valuable. Yeah. Yes. Well, there might be more variance. You're there's plays are completed far less frequently. Uh, teammates are far worse at supporting and getting open skill level. Your teammates is way lower. So, you know, you can do, I was explaining this to someone a few weeks ago, but like, like we're really just getting at the start of data tracking. Like I know sport logic does stuff in junior hockey, but that shouldn't scare you away. They, there, there, there are things that they don't track that the public sphere tracks regularly that anyone who does a data tracking project will do or most people. Right. So there are so many different ways you can take this and just the more data that teams have available to them and the more data that we see like sneaking through the cracks in the public, the more opportunity people like myself or other data trackers have to like really start innovating and creating. Right. Yeah, no, it is fascinating because hearing you explain that, I'm already thinking, well, yeah, I, I could see why that would be a debate because how can you how can you assess what the intent was, right? I mean, of course... You, you have a good idea, but it is a ju- it seems to be a judgment call. But then also the result, a guy who's excellent at creating chances, but that has guys who just don't get, aren't able to do anything with the pass, he may end up getting punished, right? And so it's fascinating, but this is the kind of stuff that I think that, you know, hockey analytics just in general needs because everything is about shots, shot attempts, you know, goals, expect all uh, that. Just context. Everything is about shooting, and I think passing is that's the that's the, the it's the dark matter that we just it, it it explains a lot of the stuff that happens, but we don't have a way of measuring it right now. And I'm very curious to see 
where that goes. So I kind of want to bring this back a little bit onto the Ducks and the draft before we kind of wrap this thing up. So I know with your CHL tracking uh, project, as you guys, I, I assume we're talking about while I was out, uh, <laughs> tracking microstats. What did you see? I think two guys in the CHL specifically that were, were very, I guess there's multiple, but two guys that come to front of mind that I'm just interested to hear your opinion on are going to be uh, Mason McTavish and then Sasha, Sasha Pasterjov for kind of two different reasons. I feel like Mason McTavish um, kind of blew what my expectations were out of the water for what I was thinking. I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, when they drafted him third overall, but I think the way that he's finished this season, he's kind of blown... Uh, made me look bad. Let's go with that. Making me you've eat, crow. You've eaten crow. You've I've eaten crow. crow. Yes. So what did, what did you see from him? And then Sasha Pastrjov is a guy that both Felix and I were really high on last year. We were really excited to see uh, see the Ducks take him and then him make the jump into the CHL and kind of the season that he was able to put together. So with McTavish, uh, the most exciting part of his game is, you know, the projectability of it all. How he mm-hmm. gets open, how he... As, as I mentioned earlier, he has gravity to what he does. He mm-hmm. brings players towards and makes the extra pass. But there's so many interesting little details to his game, from the way that he makes the early pass in transition to better suit his skill level. He's not Mr. Dangle through everything in transition. He's mm-hmm. going to pass it, relocate, get open. You're going to see the odd crazy move out of him, but that's just that's mm-hmm. just what high skill players do. Um, and then there's also the, the defensive side of things. He's not you know, this nuclear-level play killer, but just in the case with Shane Wright, you expect that as he goes up the level, the fact that he's so intelligent, the fact that he knows how to position himself, he's going to add more urgency. He's going to add more of a physical side to his game, and he's going to become even more disruptive. I think currently he's looking like a, I don't want to say likely, but a good chance of becoming a, a very solid top six center. Outside chance he could be a number one guy, and then of course, I mean you can put him, you can put him on the wing, and he'll be just as effective. You can put him anywhere, and he's going to be, mm-hmm. uh, he's going to be ultra disruptive. Uh, he's a bull. That's that's his yeah. game, but yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. a ton of finesse, a ton of finesse. Like he's he's the type of player you know. We often hear like, oh, he's the type of player you win with, and I don't know if he is or if he isn't. But in terms of what they're seeing, like guys who win battles, get to the middle, make their teammates better, he is that. That is absolutely for sure. Mm-hmm. Pashjov, I thought, was a big disappointment this season. He got okay. off to a crazy start mm-hmm. and then fell off of a cliff, including that uh, rather stupid uh, play in the playoffs that he got suspended for. Mm-hmm. But I mostly this season just saw him as a shooter. You know, guy with skating issues, takes perimeter shots, guy who can cut to the inside mm-hmm. and score the odd one. Uh, can really rip it off the pass. That's never been in any question. But I think mm-hmm. the step up from USHL to OHL hockey is a, is a big one, uh, even if people don't want to admit it. And I think his skating limitations were a little bit more visible. He wasn't okay. nearly as, as impressive of a transition attacker this season. Mm-hmm. I didn't think his playmaking was as strong as it was in previous seasons. The other side of it, though, is that Pashajov did improve significantly on the defensive end. So it wasn't a lost season by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was more active on the forecheck. I think he was anticipating rather than just relying on hand-eye coordination. Like He knew where the play was going. He was putting himself in the right positions. And then defensively, far more proactive as well. No longer just chasing and applying pressure. He was working down low. He was reading handoffs. He was positioning himself to then get the puck, 
and then make the next play immediately. Uh, I still think he's in a bit of a tough road to get to the NHL, but if he hits, I mean, he's a guy who can cut to the inside, he can score, he can set his teammates up. It'll really come down to skating improvement. Right. Yeah. I mean that. I'm. I have not nearly watched him as much as you, but I remember we saw him at the development camp last year, and I think there was a lot of excitement because yes, he was a guy who you know was kind of one of those stealthy good picks. But you watch him play, and it's it doesn't quite match. I think the the excitement of of this could be a great dark horse pick. Um, okay, well let's let's shift over here. We have a few questions from some of our listeners that we'll just go through. Um, Jake, do you want to take us through these, and then we can we can wrap this thing up? Yeah. So we have this one. This is from our Patreon Discord. Sorry, everyone listening to this on YouTube or on podcast services. Twitch stream had to be killed because of my internet services. <laughs> you probably can understand. Uh, so Heyo Flo said, considering uh, Martin Madden's sterling reputation around the league as Italian ev- evaluator, why do you think he has not gotten an opportunity as a GM yet? Oh, he's too good at scouting. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I think he's one of these guys. Like, I don't want to speak for him. But he's a guy who's in every rink at once. It seems impossible, but you know <laughs> that that's just what he does. Um, he's he's a terrific talent evaluator. Does that necessarily mean that you're going to be great at other things? Absolutely not. I mean, I think I think he'd be a great GM. I think his. I mean, you just look at how they how the Ducks draft, right? And I know there are holes in their drafting. I know there are guys that they've missed on, but there are Everyone teams does. that does. Exactly. And they're a team that consistently does a good job identifying players within what they are looking for. Um, They, to put it mildly, really do their homework more than almost any other team you're going to come across in the NHL. And he's the reason why. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's a good point on the talent evaluation, which is that, yes, on one hand, being a great talent evaluator does not make you a great GM, but... There are a lot of GMs who don't appear to be great talent evaluators and would probably be, pro- yeah, would probably really benefit <laughs> from being just good at that and nothing else. Uh, it seems like getting good players is uh, is important. Anyway, Jake, next one. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, our good friend Bonnie at Litterkel said, "What draft play uh, drafted or what player for this draft do you think has been undervalued and will surprise when he is chosen higher up on the draft day?" Oh, this is really a. Mitch thinks he's smarter than everyone questions. Yep, yep, one hundred percent. Bonnie's setting you up. She's uh, she's the teacher in our group, basically. Of listeners, uh, players who I think will go higher. I mean, I think the the easy one is probably Owen Beck. Like, okay. you just watch the guy, and you're like, that's mm. an NHLer, and that's just not like fourth line guy. That could be top nine center kind of guy. Uh, tools plays the middle very aggressive with the puck. His playmaking improved so much throughout the season. You even start seeing like more high-level flashes where he's manipulating, creating just a real high-pace attacker, tons of room to improve defensively. He's just – he's everywhere. He just engulfs players. It doesn't even seem possible. Like he's he, – he doesn't – his wingspan isn't massive, but it seems like one second he's he's taking the puck away from the guy at the net front, and then he just sprints to the point and denies a point shot. Uh, and in no time at all. So he's a great candidate. And then, of course, Julian Lutz out of Germany. I mean, I think mm. there's a real chance he could go late first, depending on how things break yeah. for him. Uh, big guy who can really skate. But I think, for me, the most interesting part of it is that 
He has a board game and he has an off puck game. So he knows how to get the puck off the boards, as we've talked about so many times in this show already. And then he knows how to get open, how to position himself in the middle of the play. He's equal parts shooter and passer. Do you expect him to be a high end, great, good, whatever? Do you expect him to be a huge point getter? Absolutely not. But he's a guy who's going to make positive plays, get open, will be an effective third liner for years to come. Okay. Um, well, then we've got two more questions here. Mm-hmm. So one is from. Olaf, he's asking, is there a quote-unquote wrong pick at 10? Yeah, there's always a wrong, there's always a wrong pick. There's, <laughs> yeah. always, there's always a wrong pick. Like, if you're sitting there at, if you're sitting there at like, number 10, you're like, you know, we really need to take Damon Gardner at number 10. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a bad pick, and I, I like Damon Gardner a lot. And I think you get into the question of, is, uh, is it a bad asset value? Like, are you picking a guy who no one else is interested in picking at that and right. you're really banking on it? Mm-hmm. Or are you picking a player who goes outside of, you know, you know who isn't good, right? <laughs> and so mm-hmm. in this context, I think, you know, you're sitting at number 10 and you pick Rutger McGordy. That's mm. potentially both of those things. But he's also physical, blah, 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 does all the cool does all the cool things. You can see a guy who one day you could ship off for higher asset value. <laughs> you know, you look lower down the draft and you start picking bad players for sure. I mean, you never, I hate being like, oh man, well, that was a terrible pick because you just don't know. I remember when people were like, oh, Moet Sider, that was a. Right. Was a yeah. Pick. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that Sider had this insane development, but it also goes to show you that, you know, if you believe in a player and especially if you believe in a person, and you have the right development that aligns with your organization, you can do a ton of work with them. So, you know, for me, when I look at the Ducks as an outside observer, unless they're picking some guy that I think is, you know, a late second rounder, I'm probably not going to question it too much. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I can well, pick, but that's about it. Let me ask that. you this question right now. I'm just going to put you on the spot before we get to the final, final question. Who do you think the Ducks take at 10 and at 22? At 10 and at 22. So I think Frank Nazar is is probably the best fit that I can see at number 10. Uh, and then otherwise you're looking at probably Pavel Mitsukov would be, would be, uh, you would, I would love to see Pavel Mitsukov in the new wave Anaheim Ducks in a few yeah. years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Making me happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then at 22, I think, uh, I, I still think they might swing. Like Liam Ugrin would be a fun one. He's very much a Ducks kind of forward, hard skill guy, but like very obviously talented, plays a give and go game, lots of getting open. He's like, he's, he's a play connector, much like in the way that Braden Tracy is, but his skill level pops a lot more. He's more dynamic in his okay. in his short but frequent touches. Um, and if they don't go defense, maybe Leon Bixell. He gets a reputation as being a big violent guy, but he actually has like a subtly brilliant amount of puck skills. You know, step inside, draw pressure, use space from the point. You know, he kind of fits the he kind of fits their mid round uh, profiles a bit more. Like with um, with the kid they took out of the queue last year, who I for whose name I Tyson uh, Tyson Hines. Yes, Tyson Hines. Tyson Hines is a big fluid guy who activates and tries to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he's much better than Hines. Don't get me wrong. And he's definitely worth a first rounder. But he he has those similar kind of characteristics to his game. Okay. And then the final question we have from Discord uh, is coming from Shaken Wings asking, uh, are there any players just overall in this draft that are going to go straight to the NHL? 
<laughs> uh, he's just uh, people are just putting you on the spot with these questions whoever goes first overall if it's not logan cooley will probably go nhl i mean you can see, i can envision a situation where Wright goes back um if there's a surprise guy who could step straight into the nhl like cole sillinger mm-hmm. i think the surprise guy could probably be someone like ooh. Well, your check would be the easy one. Your check okay. might be the guy who just kind of slides in here right away. You can't, you can't turn him away. But yeah. probably Marco Casper. Marco Casper right. might just okay. force his way into things. You know, Makes he sense. has the right combination of uh, of violence for the lizard brain coach and enough skill <laughs> that coaches might be able to keep him around. So you think maybe the Flyers then take him with that take? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I wasn't going to say that. But... He's a torch guy. I'll, I'll, I'll say it for you. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the guy, guys like Marco Casper are good for the game, whereas guys like Trevor Zegras are, are not good for the game, uh, oh. according to the Flyers. So, <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, I think we should probably wrap up. We're, we're above an hour. Uh, Mitch, you've been so gracious with your time. This yes, has been thank awesome. thank you so much. And, and thank you for bearing with us with some, some tech difficulties. So I'll just get us out of here real quick. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to help us keep this thing going, there's a few easy ways to do it. Number one, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash crash the pond. Find us on Twitter. We're on all the different uh, podcast services, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're on YouTube as well. And check out our website, crashthepond.com. And before we let you go here, Mitch, I do want you to quickly just let people know where they can find you, where they can find your stuff and, uh, and benefit <laughs> as we all have here. After you're done following all the Crash the Pond media... <laughs> Go on Twitter. You can find me at Mitch L. Brown. And then head to EliteProspects.com and check out our draft guide. It, the subscription is like $10 US per month, and there's a three-month free thing going on right now. The draft guide is amazing. I would highly, highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. And, hey, if the Ducks end up picking Frank Nazar, there will be a video on our YouTube channel. It's about eight minutes long, breaking down all the great bits of his game and why he's worth a top-five pick. I love those videos. <laughs> they're, great. They, they're very helpful for people who just helicopter in like me yeah, a, few weeks, <laughs> a few weeks in advance. Uh, I, I'm just going to echo that and say that, yes, absolutely go check out Elite Prospects. We we use them regularly on the show, even throughout the year. Um, mm-hmm. the, the draft guide is excellent. Even it's if you get it... Even if you get it after the draft, like you're still going to benefit. You're still going to learn about the sport. You're going to benefit from all these the, the track data that Mitch provides. So... Thanks again, Mitch, and thanks to everybody for listening today. And uh, we will talk to you at the next show, probably post-draft. We'll see what happens. Uh, maybe the Canadians will draft Uri Slavkovsky first overall, and I'll just jump off a bridge. We'll see. Um, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you at the next show. Bye. <laughs>